and welcome to the Auto Movie Intermission Podcast. I'm Chris Ratcliffe and in this show we discuss cars and films and generally geek out about all things automotive in movies, TV and online. In this episode I'm joined by journalist, presenter and producer Mike Spinelli. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Hey Chris, good to be here. Let's start with your favourite all-time TV or movie car. Well, so it's... (laughs) It's really funny because, like, all the ones that, that you know, the sort of usual suspects would be kind of obvious. And I, I don't, I'm trying not to be completely obvious. So I, But I did find one that I, I love. And it was it's sort of an obscure one. And it was in two movies, but they're both related. So in and, – and it's just – it's such a car nerd thing for me to do. And I don't, I don't mean it – I don't mean it to sound this way, but – Welcome to the family. This is, this is what we're here for. <laughs> exactly. But I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, the James Patterson uh, Alex Cross mystery series. Well, it's it, it's sort of it's a mystery series, or it's also sort of partly thriller. There were two movies made in one in '97 and one in 2001, uh, both starring Morgan Freeman. There was Kiss the Girls, and uh, the follow up was Along Came a Spider. And right, right. So Alex Cross is this kind of—I guess he's a detective, but then also became a forensic psychologist, and is such a Morgan Freeman character. I mean, it's just kind of the coolest guy with the turtleneck and the you know just just you know perfectly perfectly set up. But also like kind of the uh, a little bit of the cool nerd crime crime solver. You know what I mean? It's like it was it's it's such a such a total Morgan Freeman thing. <laughs> and in, in the books and in those movies, he drives an absolutely perfect brown <laughs> I say this because Brown is the automotive journalist's shorthand for nerd car. <laughs> a brown 74 911. It's a 2.7 car, but it is absolutely perfect. It has it's fuchs sort of perfectly shined and it is an absolute and I saw it I just remember seeing it the first time it's one of those cars that sneaks up on you and all of a sudden it's in the scene and then you go oh cool and then in another scene it's like oh wait a minute and then you get that great that sweeping panning shot and you're like oh my god that's the it's that perfect brown I forgot the name of the brown it's like a cocoa brown and uh, it's you know, of course, the nerd had to notice that in the first movie, in Kiss the Girls, it's got sealed beam headlights. <laughs> <laughs> and in Along Came the Spider, it's got H4s. So, like, other than that, you know, obviously, it's probably a different car unless they did the swap. But, um, yeah, so that, I mean, it's one of those things that it's less obvious, but um, mm. it's one that if you if you ever see that, I mean, you can go to Internet Movie Car Database and, and see it in there. It's just like that perfect car. Oh, I love a brown car, so I will absolutely go and check that out. Yeah. So where did your interest in, in cars start from? I, it's fi- kind of funny. So I I guess we have to go all the way back to uh, growing up in the New York suburbs. I, so, I, I mean, I grew up in a New York suburb that uh, – and, and I'm only – I'm trying to get there because it's sort of culturally it was betwixt and between, I guess, as, as you might say – it was a town that was mostly rural. It's not that far from from the city. It's about 20 miles from Manhattan and uh, was mostly rural, didn't have a train line and didn't have any other way to get there other than a, a small country road. So it never really grew and there were orchards and that kind of stuff. Mm. So it was a little bit of a hick town. And, th- and then IBM decided to put its headquarters there in, in Armagh, New York. So it's like it, it 
all of a sudden went through this transition of going from kind of, you know, working class and, and a little bit hickey to becoming the cosmopolitan. It's a little bit more posh than it. Well, actually, it's a <laughs> these days it's a lot more posh than it was. But, uh, you know, when I was growing up, it was making that transition. So as when I was a kid, it was muscle cars. There were muscle cars everywhere. And I grew up in the shadow of, uh, of the baby boom. So, you know, the kids that were t- 10 years older than me, uh, I was looking around as a child and seeing, you know, the, the girl next door, her boyfriend had a 68 GTO. There was a uh, Chevelle SS396 down the street. There were there were Novas that were lifted and 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 you know some of them had superchargers uh, and then there was there was one kid who him and his brother were twins and one had a, a Nova and the other one had a Camaro Z twenty eight and this was and mostly these wow. were yeah exactly right it was like this cornucopia of uh, of, <laughs> of, uh, of muscle. Uh, so so that was the sort of environment and and they were just you just hear them ripping around town and that was kind of my first exposure to, you know, enthusiast cars. So my first magazine was Hot Rod Magazine. And I sort of got caught up in that because they were just cheaper and easier to work on. And uh, and everybody's older brother had a Holly Carb or, you know, some kind of part for, and we just give give you stuff to work on your car with. So that was the, that was the, that was, it was sort of easy to get caught up in and, and, and I always, I always say I was the sort of last generation before Hondas became raceable. So, <laughs> so we were sort of there were there were you know it was us and then it was like the, the kids with would come down from Scarsdale with the um, Mustang 5.0s that were new, and we would all sort of end up in Yonkers at on Central Avenue, which was where all the drag racing took place. So that was we were really it was really part of that scene. And then at the same time, sort of the the plot twist was, you know, because the neighborhood and the town was changing and becoming more upscale, we would see all of a sudden, you know, I guess it sort of happened in the in the later 80s. Uh, it happened really quickly where all of a sudden we'd see, oh, some someone's dad bought a slant nose, you know, a gray market slant nose came in. And then there was, oh, there's a there's an S class with um, with Penta wheels and an AMG kit on it. And oh wow, yeah, yeah. So, so there was this crazy combination and this 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 real transition from the muscle car thing into the German, uh, you know, the German car world of the eighties, and it was all happening in this one place. So it was kind of neat to be in, involved in all of that stuff. And Lime Rock was really close. So I mean, we had I had friends whose dads raced Porsches up there, and so yeah, it was this combination of sort of hard working class muscle car stuff in Yonkers and then the more genteel uh, Porsche racing up in uh, in, the, in the beautiful Lime Rock uh, Lime Rock racetrack. So. And you were just in the middle of it, just absorbing everything and, yeah, yeah, and it, getting into the details. Exactly. And that that's really the thing, right? Because, I mean, as a car nerd, I was also a music nerd, too. I mean, that was sort of more of what I did as a hobby. So, I mean, cars were always – cars were just full immersion, because they were always around, and that's just what we talked about. Other, if we weren't talking about music, it was really only about cars and music. There were two things. I mean, then and yeah, there was some very cool stuff that just started to show up back then, just because it was a one of those sort of the '80s were just such a, a fertile time, you know, as you know, uh, uh, for cars that were specialty cars and trying to grab a piece of that new money that was coming in. 
at that time, did you have a plan or an interest to get into the car world more, or was it always just a sort of peripheral thing? You know, absolutely not. It's really interesting because I didn't want anything to do with the car. And, and actually, growing up in New York, like I went, ended up going to school in New York and and staying on the East Coast, and it, it, there wasn't a a thought of. I mean, like car culture in terms of media was something that happened in Detroit and L.A. Mm. And for us. Uh, you know, car and driver had already moved out of New York and went to Detroit years before that. So I figured, well, I, I really wanted to go into the music business. I was doing some internships at, at record labels and junk like that. But I went to journalism school and I just assumed that I would find another uh, path. And and I kind of did because that was right when the you know Internet 1.0 was happening. And I sort of fell backwards into that and left the car thing kind of as a, a side a side deal, but and it was always like from the sidelines because I, I didn't have a car in the city, and so it was it was a lot of vicarious living at that point. Where do we go from journalism school to <laughs> starting Jalopnik? Yeah, well, it's a weird it's a weird path. I mean, I really did get deeply into the Internet 1.0 stuff, and I was really uh, I really thought that it was going to change the world in terms of. <laughs> No, I mean, like, I, it was like it wasn't so much the uh, the storybook change the world stuff. It was really like we really thought that new voices would would emerge from that, and and it, it felt to us a lot like years before that the sort of punk rock zine world too back then. So it yeah, I can see that. Yeah, I mean, that was the, sort of how we were were imagining it. It was kind of the perfect. Um, I mean, it was there was still a weird little counterculture part of it back then before the um, the industry showed up. So um, that's why that sort of drew me into that. And I started I ended up working mostly for the next few years at a consulting firm, just kind of absorbing everything. And then, yeah, and then the Jalopnik thing happened just kind of as a. Uh, yeah, just as a just a surprise thing that happened. <laughs> I. I Wow. Yeah. Okay. So the, let's just get the timeline straight. So, so the internet boom had happened and then it crashed. Right. Mm. Um, so this is the early two thousands and I had made it through like four rounds of layoffs. This was the, the kind of, you know, the end of the, the first exuberance of, of the internet. And I got spit out on the other end of the first internet boom and ended up working at IBM as an, <laughs> this was the worst job. This was the, <laughs> really was the worst job. I was doing uh, market research stuff. I was a market research editor, and most of it was hardware and like the big mainframes and just really mind-numbingly boring Dilbert kind of market <laughs> research. So realizing like I have to get out of here, and then I, you know, I didn't know where to go. It was sort of felt like like okay, well, I don't have enough of the you know real tech experience and and, mm. and the tech chops to make it into you know to make the tech part of it my career. And then I I just figured well I'd like I'd love to get back to writing. So I just found out through just a friend of a friend or something that Gawker was looking to start an automotive site of some kind, and Gawker obviously had been. At that point, they were still a small company, but mm. you know, Giz Gizmodo was relatively popular as a gadget and device site, and Gawker itself was kind of the snarky, you know, kid in the back of the class of media. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, and so I just sent an email to Nick Denton, who was the you know who founded 
Gawker and I said, hey, I, I'm in New York and I know about cars. And uh, if you're looking for somebody to do this, I'd like to try out or something, audition. And he just <laughs> he just said, I, and I, and I could imagine, like, he was in New York. He's looking for somebody in New York and nobody shows up, right? It's like there's, <laughs> there's nobody – Nobody who could who had I mean just it was just a weird confluence of things that I just was there and fit the suit or something you know it's <laughs> yeah yeah and that's just how it how it happened and he said uh, here you know here are the keys go write me two weeks worth of posts and I said okay and I still had my other job so I was it was still a, just a part time thing and um, I I wrote a bunch of posts. And they were all, you know, I mean, back then, you know, it was blogging was, let, let's look at this thing that happened. And then here's a hundred words. And it's, it was more, it was more of a curation thing. And then I would get bored and write some, you know, take of some kind back then. <laughs> and that, and that was it. And then, so we had all these posts ready to go and then we didn't have a name. <laughs> so, so obviously, you know, I guess the, 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 yeah, then where the hell do you come up with a name like Jalopnik? And I it, really... <laughs> It, it was Nick wanted everything back then to uh, every name had to represent a person doing something. Right. And so it was just a thing. So he had Gawker and he had something called Defamer, which was the L.A. Uh, gossip site. So we were looking for the, the version of Defamer for automotive. And obviously Piston Heads was already a thing. And um, we went through all the kind of standard Automotive jargon, <laughs> you know, it's sort of uh, what do you call a person who's into cars? And it it none of it resonated. And worse than that, it was all taken. You know, all the domains were taken. Yeah. So really, I don't. You know, and then it was just one of these weird like nights with a bottle of champagne and uh, <laughs> you know, three three idiots with like poetry magnets. You know, sort of nice. just moving words and stuff around. And I don't know what happened. It was just one of us said Jalopy and the other one said Beatnik and somebody said Jalopnik. And and I thought it was horrible. I just thought it was I would thought it was ridiculous. Like I didn't see this is the thing. I wish I could go back and say, well, at that moment, yeah, I, I really just, <laughs> the sparks went off and I knew we had a winner. No, not at all. I, I thought it was horrific. And I just pictured myself calling up car companies and saying that I was from Jalopnik. <laughs> and um, I, I was horrified. And the next day I, I emailed Nick Denton and I said, I, no, there's no way I'm doing that. I'm not. This is a terrible name. He said, no, it's perfect. He said, I've already hired the designer. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> And I, I just I woke up, you know, it was the middle of the night, cold sweats, just looking at the ceiling, going, "What have I got myself into?" And then, I, then I just was resigned to it, and I said, "Well, if I'm going to do a site called Jalopnik, it's going to be, it's going to have a whatever a Jalopnik ethos to it." <laughs> so that was, <laughs> it, that, that was, I, that was actually, I guess, it was good because uh, I just, you know, I just went with it from there and 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 used it as a as a device, and it became a thing. And what was that ethos? I mean, you said you've got like an academic journalism background, but then you're in this kind of new frontier <laughs> of who knows what it's going to be. So how did you approach it? What was your what was your your sort of take on what it should be like? Yeah, I well, you know, it's funny. Part of it was just I had to knock out 12 to 18 posts a day. So there was a little bit of urgency uh, just to follow to get some kind of news cycle going. So there was that. I mean, and then my voice was just me rushing to get the thing done and trying to be as 
it was almost like this sort of goofy person who had uh, I don't know. It was I, I sort of developed this writer writer alter ego of just <laughs> just this stream of consciousness stuff and like whatever joke, whatever thing popped into my head, I would write it and then I would I would go back and edit it sort of a little bit tighter, you know, than that. But but it was really just me kind of losing my mind at the time and it sort of worked because it was I you know, I would just sort of make observations off the mm. top of my head and throw them in and then I would I would you know sort of look at them later and see see if that if it wasn't too embarrassing um, <laughs> and that was it and then you know it was that was a matter of starting to throw references to things that that I was interested in whether it was music or other cars or or movies or or TV shows or books or whatever and it was just like anything I guess like anything else uh, I just sort of channeled my inner 16 year old zine writer <laughs> I've got to say Jalopnik was absolutely one of those sites where you'd get online first thing in the morning and you'd go through and that was one of the sites that you check every day because one there was a lot of content mm. but two it was quite digestible it was qu it was quite fun and also one of the things that it exposed me to was there was a lot of references that I didn't immediately get <laughs> you know a lot of the sort of the more American stuff and the few times that I ever got any content into Jalopnik was just like, you know, the full sort of Homer Simpson. Because <laughs> it, it must have been an education for you, though, because the amount of, you know, it just became this big confluence of yeah. stuff from all over the world. And there must have been like submissions you got. Going, Who? What? <laughs> You're you know, right. What is this? Yeah. It, well, it's also it's, you know, the, the 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 dirty secret is that I just didn't know as much as a lot of the real good journalists out there. So I was learning a lot of things as I was going along. Um, I wasn't, I didn't grow up as one of those guys that could rattle off all the body codes of, of this or that, of, you know, every Mercedes or BMW body code. So, I mean, I, I got to that point later, but like it was mm. just so sort of forcing my, well, what was great, we had competition with Autoblog at the time and Autoblog yeah. was the sort of blog of record. And I didn't want to be Autoblog at all, but and I did want to, but I did want to beat them into some news stuff. So I, I, where they were very American Midwestern, and and just and I don't mean that as a as a dig. It's just that that was that was there. It was more locational, and so they were more Detroit focused. And so I, you know, I mean, as as I might, you know, on the New York side, went to Europe and and followed European sites and, and got up earlier and you know I got to sort of uh, looked at sites like world car fans which was always it was great about sites like that where they would have access to the press releases and I didn't have any access to any press releases so um, I would take that stuff which was immediate which was fantastic uh, and then piston heads and and any, anything else, you know, there were other. There was a, an auto blog in in the Netherlands. Was auto blog NL, and there were and there were all, there was all kinds of other stuff. And so I would just I bring that into the morning post that I would do. Mm. And so so there was that this combination of this kind of drinking from the fire hose of what was happening right now and learning all of the like minutia that I didn't know, and then also because that was so intense. It would sort of throw my mind into a, a a little bit of a tailspin, so I would it would actually be processed through there as these kind of insane posts because like I think it was the only way I could do it and uh, and actually get the stuff done 
was if I did it in that that weird voice that I had. What was the point with Jalopnik? Not what was not what was the point with Jalopnik, but where was that milestone where you kind of went? hang on, this is getting big, you know, this is getting some attention. Well, it was interesting. Finally, I I was able to hire somebody, uh, Davey Johnson, who passed away recently. And uh, it was a a very good friend immediately. And we went to Detroit the first time in 2006. So we had been doing it since 2004. Right. And uh, by 2006, it was like January of 2006, we show up in Detroit. It's our first time at the Detroit show. And we had no idea what to expect. He's got a a Husker Du, an orange Husker Du t-shirt on. I've got some kind of like, I have no style. I just, I ended up, I think it was like (laughs) some kind of uh, sweater vest over some kind of, what the hell, but my hair was really long. (laughs) We looked like a couple of nuts and um, we show up there and everybody's in suits. Like this was the thing. We had no idea, but all of the automotive media back then was just dressed impeccably, I mean, as an automotive, as impeccably as an automotive <laughs> journalist could dress, but like just really good blue suits, and we're we're we look like a bunch of nuts, and we're like, oh god, we're we're what well, we shouldn't even be here. But then people started coming up to us and saying, hey, you know, you guys are great. I mean, we really like what you're doing, and we're and it was the first time we'd, you know, we had there were commenters, you know, the commenters were great because we invited them and. Just to digress a little bit, Gawker was really smart about inviting people to comment. So uh, rather than throwing the floodgates open, and, and of course we would invite anybody who wanted to, but but they would. It was this, and they ended up being a sort of self policing committee for the site, uh, and they really felt they had ownership of it. So we didn't even realize what we had been doing is that we were trying to connect with them because we were just writing stuff that we thought would connect with us if we were reading them. Yeah. And so we did connect with them. And then by inviting everybody to comment, we actually had a, a sort of a cheerleading squad and a, and a steering committee almost so that a lot of those people were in the automotive media. So we met a lot of those people in Detroit. And that was where we realized that I think we had been doing something that r- was resonating with people. And we weren't just a couple of knuckleheads who were doing something that who knows? We were looking at traffic numbers, too, but it was really like, you know, and some of the PR people would come up to us and sort of surreptitiously give us a wink and say, you know, thumbs up. But we like there was no way we were getting access to any of their stuff. <laughs> but but it was. Yeah, I think that was the moment. It was Detroit 2006. Uh, and then it, it just sort of um, uh, we just kept going from there. And looking around now, because I mean, obviously, I think of Jalopnik and I think of both the longer posts, the posts you wrote, the guest posts that you had were all obviously sort of text and they they were all long written posts. There wasn't really, especially I think sort of 10 years ago, there wasn't the amount of video that there is now. Right, right. Do you see people still writing long form? Do you see that there's still a sort of emerging talent coming through in writing? Wow, yeah, it's a good, it's a really good question because I think... The answer is <laughs> the answer is that I'm not seeing I'm seeing more interest from younger writers who want to be writers, but I'm not seeing a lot of what what used to be were younger writers who were into cars but wrote about something else and then decided to write about cars, kind of like what I did. Uh, it's very difficult now because the enthusiasm is there, but a lot of the writing chops isn't there. And and I don't mean that as a dig on anybody. It's just that it's just not part of of what people do anymore. And this is where I think there's a slight generation gap in that, you know, we grew up wanting to be writers first. And then we read 
Hunter S. Thompson and all of the typical suspects and that. And we wanted to be like those guys and <laughs> went to school to try to to try to emulate them in a way that that worked so that we could make a living at it. Whereas uh, now it's like a lot of and which is fantastic. A lot of kids who grew up reading Jalopnik or grew up reading Piston Heads or, or um, Petrolicious now is where a lot of younger writers sort of came on that was their sort of the moment of where they said, I wanted to write about cars. And so now it's very, but they don't have the grounding and it's, it, we're finding it that we, we do have to sort of do a little bit more teaching now about the basics, which is fine because the enthusiasm is there. And, and there is still an appetite for longer form stuff. It's just that everybody's attention is split in so many directions because like, am I going to, I don't have the time to read all of the articles that I used to read. Now uh, I might want to watch five or six YouTube videos or, you know, another couple of episodes on Netflix. There are just so many more diversions now. So I think the appetite is there. It's just much more fragmented and hard to, hard to really capture somebody's attention compared to back then it was, I think. So that actually brings us neatly on to, speaking of YouTube, where did Drive all start? That's a that's a good question, yeah. So what, what happened was I, I was getting kind of tired of the grind of Jalopnik. And I think that something had turned at Gawker where it had, all right, less about what I wanted to do in terms of content and more toward getting the big story first before anybody else, which is a, a noble goal, I guess, for, for a news site, of course. And then also getting big scoops and doing more disruptive things to try to get attention and stuff. So I I didn't want to, I, I don't know, I was getting a little tired of that. And it, I was spending a lot of time at auto shows and a lot of time, you know, dealing with just day-to-day stuff. So I uh, I left there and took some time off and did some freelancing. It was sort of a, a good time to be a magazine writer, I think, at that point, because it was sort of, there was still money in magazines, I guess. And so I happened to run into a guy that I had known uh, who had been doing TV, who was, had tried to pitch a few things to Jalopnik before, and, and I, I just, just wasn't really the right time, and, and w- was starting a, it was a video startup called Next New Networks, and their whole the thing they were trying to do is be a studio for content and then take that content and distribute it, you know, through all of the emerging video platforms at the time, which one of them was YouTube, but there were a <laughs> bunch of others. And the whole point was to sort of that, hey, look, the entire landscape is there's this super distribution possibility where you can get blogs to run it. And then if you track Every one of those videos, you could run a, a pre-roll ad and then track the... So it's like it was this sort of decentralized um, version of cable TV. And I thought that was... It sounded like an interesting idea. And he was into cars, so he wanted to do a sort of a car beat. And I I jumped on. I joined that company. And we the first thing we did was a news show called Next, uh, called uh, Fast Lane Daily, which, which survived a bunch of years. And we, you know, I, he had known Matt Farah. So Matt Farah came in and we did a talk show with Matt and Matt was always very opinionated even back then. I mean, <laughs> 15 years ago or whatever. Um, and he was great, sort of a natural guy on, on camera. And um, we just started sort of producing stuff. And uh, JF Musial, who is now the producer of NBC Sports for us and has his own company, Tangent Vector, um, does commercial work. 
he came in as a kind of a kid. Uh, he had worked with Alex Roy, who did his, uh, you know, it was this all the New York guys. This is sort of interesting. It's sort of all the New York guys that were sort of didn't know what to do with themselves <laughs> with cars. All kind of got together in this one place, and um, right, and and yeah, it was kind of neat for a while. And we were producing sort of small, sort of episodic shows, and uh, of course, this daily news show that we did. So we started getting our chops for producing in this way, in this really sort of guerrilla way. And, 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 and sort of at the end of that, it was, um, Harris and, and those guys were doing, um, uh, driver's Republic. And all of a sudden it was like, Oh crap, this is, there are real possibilities here. And so unfortunately at the same time, the company was running out of money and it was, as was happening, I guess at the time, it was sort of running into some difficulties because YouTube had, or YouTube had become such a big force in distribution that it was kind of destroying their business model. And there was really no way to do this massive distribution without YouTube owning a giant piece of it. So I left and uh, I started working at a magazine called Zero to 60. Um, And subsequently, actually, that company, Next New Networks, was was swallowed up by YouTube and became... Well, it, this is sort of what happened. It, it became the basis for the the grant program called Made for Web, from which dr- we pitched them Drive, and Drive became one of their networks. So uh, that was uh, it. Sort of there's there's some overlap here, but I was I went back to magazines and JF Musial and um, uh, and actually Matt Farrow moved out to LA and started doing his own videos, and um, JF you know had this idea. And worked with a couple of the guys that we knew at Next New Networks and pitched this this new idea for a, a network on YouTube. And and that was that. That's how that started. And then JF came to me and said, hey, you want to do some video stuff? And I was like, I don't know. I'm kind of enjoying this magazine thing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I want to go back to that. Because, yeah, but I was said, all right, what the, what the hell? And, and then I had also gone back to Jalopnik a bit. To to do to um to do some day to day stuff when zero to sixty eventually failed. So this is sort of a, a two year period where I was dabbling around in in magazines and sort of wondering whether I should get back into the video thing. And then I just I, eventually I just went all in and did a show for Jalopnik on the Drive Network called Jalopnik on Drive. I mean bringing bringing it all together and uh, it's sort of mini little mini documentaries of things that I thought were cool and. Uh, yeah, and, and and started this talk show called Afterdrive, and I, I I don't know, I never really wanted to be a presenter because I just I it was just not I, I'm not a sort of natural presenter. I mean, Matt Farah was was a natural like I could grab that guy and you know he could present anything, but we were on the hook for a certain number of hours per year for YouTube, and if uh, oh this is sort of this is where Harris comes in because because Chris. After Drivers Republic, he was available, and he had him and Neil were self-contained production unit, and they were so good at what they did. Mm. Uh, and I had known Chris from working at Zero to Sixty because he was writing for me over there when I was running it. And Chris, you know, he was, he was Chris Harris even then. <laughs> That's what <he> always say. <laughs> um, so he, you know, we knew that he was going to be good. Uh, Farah was doing his show, and that was good. And we had a guy named Mike Musto that was doing the. Uh, uh, the um, muscle car stuff, but we still had 130 hours to fill. So we were talking about a talk show and I just, we, I was like, all right, well, talk show is cheap. I'll just do that. <laughs> so, um, so I started eating up a bunch of hours 
doing the talk show so that Chris and Matt and, and Mike would have uh, have more resources to do their, their <laughs> sliding around and whatnot in cars. But it was fun anyway. So that's how that all started. <laughs> <laughs> it was a real coming together of so much talent. I mean, I remember when it launched and every day there was something from somebody that and it was all really good i mean it must have been quite exciting to kind of be in the middle of that and to see what was coming down the pipe yeah it it was exciting it was really interesting to see so jf was the the guy who came up with a lot of the production tricks that made it possible to do cool looking stuff and you know we had we had met people over the years like the strangely the uh australian top gear crew was very down and dirty the way they shot stuff and it was and we got a lot of really good tips from them so there was so we had a we had a vision for what we wanted it to look like and then youtube had a, a you know their whole thing was to try to make it as much like tv as possible because they were trying to wean people off of or, or at least change their viewing behavior from hey look at those puppies to <laughs> to, to actual uh you know tv quality stuff so and also the technology was making it possible for, you know, there were lipstick cams and all of a sudden there were GoPros and then all of a sudden there were like three other different kinds. So it was this weird, again, it's another confluence of things that made it possible to do the stuff we were doing. And then also, you know, we were just just enthusiasts about what we were, it were, we were doing. I mean, Chris obviously had a lot of talent. Uh, talent. Hey, don't tell, don't tell him I said that because, you, know, <laughs> you know, obviously, you know, but obviously Chris like had some experience in a lot of, he brought a lot of rigor to what he did and, and that sort of helped influence the rest of us. Cause we were always, you know, it was always like, we were a little bit ragtag and then we would look at how Chris and Neil w- would throw stuff together. And then we kind of quickly got our stuff together too. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so there was a combination of all those things, plus a little bit of competitiveness between all of us. And then cheap flights also <laughs> for, for a while. I mean, I'm not kidding. Like this was, it was really the luck of the of the economic draw at that point because we could fly places and it didn't cost, you know, 1500 bucks to get across the, across the Atlantic. So we were able to go to Europe and shoot things for, we go for a week and shoot a bunch of things and then bring back 10 or 12 different kinds of stories that we would do. We were pretty organized about the way we approached it. I think too, because we all had experience running, um, r- you know, running media organizations and such that they, such that they were, <laughs> but they were still like, there was a lot of, a lot of um, disciplines that we had, all of us just from, you know, we looked like a bunch of knuckleheads, but you know, we, we did have spreadsheet, <laughs> we had some spreadsheet knowledge. So I think that spreadsheet knowledge uh, really helped us out too. And I guess having an editorial background as well. Yeah. You, it wasn't all just improv. There was the ability to write, to distill ideas, to ensure that what you were doing had a narrative, had a purpose. Yeah. Even if some of Alex Roy's stuff, <laughs> with the greatest of love and respect, you'd sometimes click on it. There's this black and white image come up and you'd be like, okay, strap in. Let's see what he's going to do this exactly. week. What I love about Alex is that nobody understood what he was doing. Or like the YouTube audience is so opinionated. Obviously, like they and they're very as soon as they see something, they they react immediately. Nobody under really understood, and I don't think we ever made it clear that Alex was inventing, like improving history 
and it was all just crap that he came up with. And, but if we had only done like an intro, like a Gilligan's Island intro, where you would tell tell what the story was going to be, and then he like at least like give some context to what he was doing, so that when he talked about Viking ships underground, you know, like <laughs> like you would know that he was just riffing, you know. He can say anything with such authority. <laughs> I'll just be like, yeah, probably. <laughs> I think we could have done better with that. Yeah, it's but it was yeah. I mean, editorially, we you know, and it was good because I wasn't a great presenter, and I could come up with videos just because I could write my way out of it and do a voiceover out of it, and and that's how I got by. Is I would do a little bit of on camera, and then I would do a lot of. So I got much better at doing voiceovers and doing because I could write, and I because I just did. I don't have the mind for doing a lot of improv. And it's just, a, I guess it's a talent. I'm probably better now, but even, you know, ask my production guys. Like I, I'm, I used to do 40 takes of things and they, they would drive them crazy. So, um, yeah, it was just, we brought whatever unique talents we had. It was like, we're putting on a show and hey, you know, you're good at, <laughs> you know, you're good at painting, you know, you paint the script, you know, this, the scene, you, you know. <laughs> it sounds a bit like the trip that you, Matt and Monkey did from, was it from the UK to Monaco? Yes. Oh God. And, yeah. And I think there was, there was one montage in there of you just trying to sort of come up with a line and deliver <laughs> it. It was so great because I, I would get so angry and I would just drive myself crazy. And then those guys would just find those moments that would tell that story too. So yeah, that was great. I mean, I, it was funny because I was driving a McLaren I knew what I wanted to say, and then every time I would start to say it, it would it would be screwed up. But there were so many great screw ups that they turned that into the thing. So that was good. That was that was nice of them to do that. <laughs> we made it work. Given the given the legacy of Drive and Drive on NBC and everything else, where do you see car content going in terms of mainstream cable, in terms of YouTube, in terms of all the myriad of streaming platforms that seem to have popped up in the last sort of year even. It's really interesting because on on one hand, there's more feature content that's shot well about cars than ever. Like I've, you know, look, wa- just watching the, the Netflix um, F1, I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on it right now. What's the name of it? It's called Drive to Survive. Drive to Survive, right, exactly. Which, you know, I think is is the perfect blend of a sort of, you know, verite style. I mean, it's like, it, it is exactly, it's documentary, it's drama. It's exactly, uh, it fits in with what a sort of modern YouTube viewer would want to see out of television. And I think that's, they, they've done such a good job with that, that I would say it's almost a little bit of a golden age because of people like them. Also in, in cinema, there's, it's never been better in the car world. The fact that Edgar Wright did a car movie was, was amazing to me. You know, I, Baby Driver, I know you guys have talked about Baby Driver. Yeah, um, yeah. But just the, and, and the fact that Fast and Furious became this sort of, is now like a nostalgic thing that kids, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I think on one hand there's that. On, on the other hand, it's difficult to say that, I mean, there's, there's a lot of good stuff on YouTube. And finally, there are a lot of more personality-driven things. But I mean, I think YouTube has always been good at, 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 at being personality-driven. And I think people like Doug DeMuro have found that, that unboxing, detail-oriented, 
real nerdy stuff. I mean, I, I think that, I, you know, that's not my particular cup of tea, I guess. <laughs> but the idea that YouTube is uh, a platform where you can do a 45-minute show about just going through every aspect of a car so that no matter what kind of car nerd you are, whether you're nerdy about the switch gear, you know, or or about the engine, I mean, whatever it is. And it's sort of, it's just that there's, it's the granularity of information it, just in this really long format that I didn't really see coming. And um, if I had, I don't know whether I could have taken advantage of it as as well as these guys have. And then also there there are some new, uh, you know, personality shows where it's sort of the two guys doing various car things like these straight pipes and um, the guy, the couple other guys from Canada. Canada seems to be a place where there's a lot of this stuff is coming out of. And then just, you know, this sort of the, the there's so much coming out of, um, uh, you know, the Motor Trend universe which is really interesting. I don't remember what your original question was. Whether it was, is it a good time? I mean, I I think that there are more ways to fail than ever, but there are also more, it's becoming that, you know, it's we're much more selective because there's so many things coming at us and because we don't have a lot of time to watch everything. The best stuff I think really is sort of rising to the top. And I, and I guess that means that it's more mature, as a medium now, what does that mean? Is TikTok going to be the next thing that people do? I mean, I don't know. I mean, is it going to go back to short form now? Now that long form has really found its moment, um, it might. It might go back to that. And I think there's probably going to be a shift in the next couple of years because thanks to things like Most Trend, you know, I can now see all the Most Trend content here yeah. in the UK. I'm really looking forward to Top Gear USA, whereas before it would be that sort of thing that you'd torrent or whatever. Yeah. And we can now get so much good content. Even the Most Trend stuff ended up on the Discovery Channel here in the UK and it was like flicking around late one night and there's suddenly Jethro Bovington <laughs> right. on my telly going, hang on. Right, exactly, yeah. But the production values of everything seems to be going up and up and up. Because there is now even stuff that you go, it's just YouTube, is being shot on Reds and is being, it's a multi-crew job. So I'm kind of interested to see where the next group of people with whatever kit they can get their hands on, whatever cars they've got available, what they're going to do to kind of bring their voice and their community up. So I think that's that's going to be an exciting, uh, exciting few years there. I, I think that's always going to be. What's great about I think this whole medium is that it, that's always going to happen, and everybody who, everybody who's doing something and is comfortable at it has to keep finding a, another way to tell that story in whatever whatever the technology brings them and wherever the audience goes to try to find it. So, yeah, I mean, there was a time when the audience was was downloading stuff illegally and we had to just deal with that. And also it's like, where's the money going to come from for all this stuff? And because there's so much inventory and it's driving the ad revenues down, it's going to favor the the new and the uh, the young and the, the kid in the in the garage with, you know, with a, whatever cameras around for them and um, they're going to find another thing to do. So I think that's, that's bad for, <laughs> for people who get too comfortable because I think the business just keeps on changing, mm. but the enthusiasm keeps marching on and the way that those stories are told, they keep accruing down at the level of the kid in the garage. 
So I think that's I think that's overall that's good. That adds the energy to the whole scene in a way that um, that I, I think will prevent it from getting stale. I have to just move on to one of our favorite films of last year that was the secret race across america the uh, apex film yeah there were two things that i have to ask you about the first of all seeing you and jf in the uh classic car club what was it it would have been now what 12 15 years ago yeah i mean yeah it's coming up on tw- uh, 14 15 almost 15 yeah 14 i guess did you know that sh- did you know that shot was in there or did you were you just there watching it and go oh hang on <laughs> well yeah i mean it's funny i jf warned me that it was going to be in there but i remember them shooting it i just i forgot that i mean it was it was kind of a shock when we first <laughs> cuz i don't know i'm using some kind of like 2 megapixel camera you know I don't even know what I was doing. I was sort of whatever that the big silver Sony uh, handy camera, whatever that was. <laughs> and yeah. And then just sort of JF as a kid. I mean, what was interesting was JF was he started out as Alex's log- logistics guy. He helped him set up that that run. Um, and that's where I met him originally. So this is yeah. I mean, so this is even before we ever thought of doing videos. I was still at Jalopnik. We were one of the outlets that signed Alex's NDA or not, a, you know, it just, just, you know, because we had to wait to write the story until, you know, his lawyer said it was okay to do that. And we, we, you know, we, we made that choice and so did uh, Wired Magazine also did it. And so we were there for the, for the, when he left and um, Davey was on the other side of the country when he came in. That was funny. It was exciting times. And, Looking at the credits, I think, I think you're credited as a writer on that film, and I'm guessing it's got to be for Ice T's narration. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I, well, how how do you write for Ice T? Oh, man, it, it's so funny. It was so intimidating. So, in the first film that we did, the Apex uh, Story of the Hypercar, we had uh, Zachary Levi, who would eventually become famous. You know, but he was pretty far from doing, you know, Shazam at that point. Um, and I had never seen his TV show, Chuck, or I think it was called. Um, and he, I mean, and, and, and if I had known, if I had known him, more about him as a, as a performer, as an actor, I would have probably done a lot more with the, with that or the narration in the, in the first film. So I feel like I was really kind of a little bit kind of irked with myself that I didn't because he's he is such a, a a sort of a personality and such a a cadence that, that you know and, and just a really good actor that I, I feel like we could have done so much more with him so that when we went to do this one and we found out that Ice T was going to be doing it I just I went okay well we're not making that <laughs> mistake again so I wanted to capture so th- this is the, so this was my thinking right I mean I was an Ice T fan I listened to him and Body Bag and like the whole his whole Going back to the beginning, um, so I knew I knew that Ice T, and then I, I, of course, I was a I was a fan of um, of Law and Order and, and uh, SVU or whatever, and and I, I wanted to capture that Ice T that the producers used to explain complicated concepts to the audience, and. I don't know if you you know the comedian John Mulaney. I don't know if you guys mm. so so yeah, John yeah. John Mulaney did a great bit about how Ice T is always sort of like caught on the back foot when something. Do you mean that these guys, uh, you know, <laughs> they 
they like little girls with ponytails and like yeah yeah ice you're a detective with the svu you've been there for 11 years you know you know this stuff but but still, he's a he sort of acts as a device. I mean, he's cool as hell. Yeah. He's, he's iced tea, but they they use him as that device. So I wanted to try to capture that device for him to use a similar voice in explaining how things worked in this film and sort of pushing the narrative forward. So I I, I watched a ton of Law and Order. I I went back and listened to his uh, his his early albums, and then. Uh, I just went with it and he came into the studio and we did, we made some changes here and there. And I never outright asked him to be that law and order guy. Cause I didn't, I didn't want him thinking about it too much, but, um, but when he came in, he was so great. He knocked the thing out in like, I was writing for months and he knocked the whole thing out in like an hour and a half, maybe, you know, what a pro, like what an absolute pro he would, he just walked into that, that, when he's behind the microphone, it's, it's like Senna behind the wheel of an F1 car. It's like, there's no, that's where he should be. I have to say, watching the film and you kind of hear that voice. And the main thing I remember him from was he was a VIP for McLaren at a Grand Prix mm. and he like shot something on his phone and he was less than positive, I think, in Bernie Eccleston's eyes at the time. And I was like, it's that voice. It's, <laughs> it's, that, it's voice. that guy. And, and I, I honestly thought, I saw your, your credit as a writer and in coming up with this, I thought, how do you approach this? Do you try and write it in his voice or do you just kind of go, here's what we're going to do and he can just sort of be iced tea? You know? well, it's just like, it's go fun. and be you. Right. Well, there were some parts where we, I was trying not to make it awkward because we, we there there are parts that we have to get from one place to another or introduce a new topic and it's always going to be there's always going to be a transitional awkwardness that I, I just didn't I didn't want it to be but it was just going to be anyway so in in those cases like I I tried to write it in a cadence that I could then tell him how I wanted it to sound mm. and then he would do it so I, I sort of wrote it hearing his voice and, and, but then sometimes like he would then he it, like that didn't quite work for him. So he would, he would reset it. But um, yeah, it was those times that, that are, I think the, the trickiest times were those things where we had to explain something. And then, so I would, I would have him do a couple of different takes and see what he, see how he put the emphasis, but most of it, most of it, he just ran through and just sounded like him. And it's, it was, it was, I tried to keep it simple so that it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't too tongue twisty, even though there were sometimes he was like, man, you really <laughs> give, give, making me work for it. <laughs> yeah. Most of the time it, uh, it just, it went off, it went off pretty easily. So before we wrap up, I want to just run through a few quick rapid fire questions. Okay. Let's start with. Your favorite car movie of recent years? Ooh. Uh, sorry. So just just to qualify, I'm the worst. I'm I'm only gonna see. I only want to watch movies in the theater, and so that means that I end up missing movies that I, I wanted to have seen, and then I I have trouble going back to them. So I haven't. I'm not completely up to date, but I think for this, I would have to say Rush, and that's because I think the thing about it is the 
total immersion. And I and I say this not having seen Ford versus Ferrari because I haven't seen it. So oh, wow. I know, I know, I know. Okay. I, I have to figure out a way to like con somebody into putting it in a theater so I can watch it. Or I'll just <laughs> break down and see it. But outside of that, and, I, and I'm assuming that might be in the same realm as this, but I like I rush to me is it's the full immersion. It's watching it's sort of being brought into another time. And it's not just necessarily about the, you know, what a great chase that was or, you know, what a great representation of a scene. I, I it was it was the full immersion into that era that I, I w- was I think the thing that really made it a great film. I mean, were the, you know, all the shots totally accurate? Yeah, I mean, I know there were some inaccuracies and some, they took some liberties and stuff, but, you know, it's Ron Howard and and fine. I mean, okay, I'll we'll let him go. But I think it's that immersion, it's being in that world for a minute of, of those two guys, those crazy, crazy times and those, that really very specific time in racing, Um I would have to say that. Which YouTube channel other than Drive should people be watching? Interesting. So, I mean, there's so many that so many people are watching, right? So, like, I don't want to, I don't want to give, those guys are already getting like 2 million views. I, I think, I think the regular car reviews guys need more viewers. Um, have you, I know, are you familiar with regular car reviews? It's a new one on me. Exactly. Okay. So these are got, these two guys. They're in the the middle of central Pennsylvania, and like I, I don't know if you ever if you ever been to the middle of central Pennsylvania, or like there's <laughs> no. just central, Pennsylvania is the gateway between the East Coast and the rural Midwest. So they are out there in that world. But total English majors, so they 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 will take a car and and the voiceovers are absolutely amazing. They they capture the car at its essence, but also in a very sort of writerly literary sense. But what a I mean, great voiceovers, and one of the guys writes a song for every for every episode. <laughs> they're they're hysterical. I mean, really, like they're great, and they've been wow. and they've been doing it for years and years and years, and. They've been doing the same, basically the same thing, and they have a, a pretty good audience. They get a couple hundred thousand views per episode, but they're not. They haven't broke broken real big. And I I want to. I don't want them to not break big, but I also don't want them to be too big because I love that the the fact that they are still like this weird Central Pennsylvania cult thing, and they'll do all kinds of crazy cars like old crappy eighties. What was that? Um, like a Dodge Shadow convertible. You know, which is which is hysterically bad on its own, and then uh, yeah, it's it's really it's a good it's a good little show. I'm a big fan. Excellent. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Given a huge budget, mm. what's the film that you'd love to make? Oh God, I I think I would love to. I, I don't know. Are you familiar with the film? It's a mad, 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 mad world. Yes. I because that was such a decadent car film and in a way that it was early 1960s it was one of those things when they would bring in all the stars that were under contract and they would sort of make them do a giant film it was this this stupid it was basically they were they were going after this buried treasure and the car scenes in there are absolutely epic 1963 i would love to do a giant budget version of that well, with just everybody in it and like 
Maybe maybe it could be in period. Maybe we could do like a Once Upon a Time in Hollywood kind of thing with it. Oh, wow. Yeah. That would be an interesting reboot. <laughs> Although I wonder how many people would actually realize it was a remake. That's exactly it. I mean, they might not, you may think it's a, re, a remake of uh, Rat Race or something. True. <laughs> Who should I talk to in the future on this podcast? Oh, oh, interesting. I, you know, it's, I always say, you know, and I mean, I, this is sort of broken record. I think if Matt Farah hasn't done this show, I think he would, he's always a good guest because he, I think the thing about Matt that makes him a good presenter is that he's not only he's got this absolute the depth of of memory, but also just big opinions on things and is pretty well studied also. So like those opinions are generally backed up with with stuff. Um, I'd like to see Edgar Wright because I <laughs> I don't know if you could get him. I mean, listen, I'll, I'll I don't know if I can do anything to help, but uh. I would love to get Edgar Wright. But I've actually watched, I think, in the last sort of few months, probably about two or three hours of Matt Farrow talking about concrete. <laughs> it's that's right. It's incredibly compelling. I know it's crazy. That guy is he. I you know I, I'm not just saying he's a friend of mine. He's just I. I he can talk about almost anything uh, compellingly. Definitely, definitely. And if people want to keep up with you and what you're doing, what's the best way for them to keep in touch and see what's down the line? Sure. I, I mean, so right now we're I'm focusing on continuing to build the site, uh, thedrive.com. Um, we're looking to start doing more videos again. So basically, this is the brand that we started years and years ago. It was owned in the interim by Time Inc. We've taken it back, and it's now independent. Um, we have uh, some new owners that are uh, have been really good about letting us do cool things. Right now, we're we're working on the sort of very news oriented, sort of back to the basics news oriented site, thedrive.com. We're sort of dialing that in right now and looking to start bringing the video thing back in. So yeah, I mean it's those are good video questions because we're yeah, I mean, what is a what is a traditional media company do in video now that anybody and a lot of great independents are doing videos now. So what is it what can we actually bring to the table? So I mean I think that those are the conversations we're having now. So uh, yeah, go to the drive.com and and see what's up. Excellent. And on that note, thank you very much Mike Spinelli. Thanks Chris. 